Good to see you. If you're a guest, I'm David. I'm the pastor. We're glad you're here. And if you're on here online, we're glad you're watching with us. Some of y'all are coming back. You haven't been in a while because we opened back up Wamba Land at Upstreet, and that's cool. It's great. You know, it's a holiday weekend, and people are traveling, and we're just glad you're here. What a great weekend, Independence Weekend. We celebrate our freedom, uh, the greatest nation that's ever lived, the most freest people that's ever lived. It's fantastic. It's really a gift from God. We, it's ironic to some degree that we, in the culture and times that we're in, it, we celebrate a day where a group of men began committing treason against the government. So go figure that. As someone pointed out, it's not treason when you win, and that's true also. I was thinking, I thought many times that if it wasn't for those men who began this and signed the Declaration of Independence, we'd all be speaking English right now. Yeah. Come on. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's, that's not that good, so I guess. Oh, well, we're in a series uh, in June and July uh, about uh, the night before from John 13, and we're looking at the night before Jesus was crucified. All four of the Gospels talk about it. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics, we call those the synoptics, uh, the word synoptic, like the word synonym, similar. Uh, those three Gospels were all written kind of about the same time, very similar together. Uh, John was written a couple decades later. Uh, but, but they all tell the story. The synoptics focus on uh, really the, the Passover meal and then the, the Lord's Supper per se. Uh, John focuses on some events that occurred in a body of teaching that we see in John 14, 15, and 16. We're going to look at that body of teaching July 31st on a Friday night from 6.30 to 10. Come, we call it Deep Fry. It's an intense a Bible study we do it about once a year. Uh, but the main thing to understand uh, in, in the night before, as we've kind of focused on, we, we began this eight-week series with verses 34 and 35. We're going to end the series with the same verses. They're that important. And uh, we, the, Jesus says, a new command I give to you, that you love one another. This is how they will know you're my disciples, that you love one another. And so we kind of asked the question, what does love look like? And that, that question basically kind of dominates the whole process, the whole working through of this sermon series. We have seen Jesus, he gathered his men, uh, and immediately what he began to do was show them an example of what it means to be his followers. At the last moments he had with them, he showed them what it means by washing their feet. We saw the washing the feet, the example, the teaching of servanthood. He was a servant, and he was a servant to all of them, even Judas. And we know from what we've seen so far, you know, John is, is mentioning Judas a couple times already, showing the concern Jesus had of bringing Judas back uh, into that relationship with him. And that's really where we're going to focus today. Judas is a very difficult and complex guy to really understand. There's not a lot of information. There's a lot of kind of views of how we should take the, Judas's betrayal. Uh, the old, old, old school kind of fundamentalist view that from the very beginning he was Satan's tool planted by the religious leaders to betray Jesus. And I get it, except at the very beginning, the religious leaders had no idea who Jesus was. They wouldn't have thought to plant someone there to betray him. On the other end, the other extreme, kind of a modern liberal view that Judas is a misunderstood hero who was even to some degree betrayed by Jesus. The truth lies somewhere in the middle of those two views. And the one thing we know for sure is that Judas betrayed Jesus. And so today we're going to look at the betrayal from uh, John 13, verse 21 through 30. Here's what it said. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. And one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. And Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. And leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? 
And Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. And since Judas had uh, charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. And as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. And so the thing that I want you to see from the message today is simply this. There are people who look, act, and talk like followers of Jesus, but they are not. There are some people, they look like a follower of Jesus, they act like it, they talk like it, they're simply not a follower of Christ. And whenever I preach a message like this, I'm always very aware, it is never my goal or intention, in fact, far from it, to ever create any type of doubt or concern in the mind of a true believer. I grew up in an era and generation Once or twice a year, evangelists would come uh, to the church, and one of the first things the evangelists always did was create doubt as to whether or not you were saved. They just did it. And they would preach these messages about how you weren't being faithful, blah, 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 blah. And then after they created doubt whether or not you were truly saved, they would then re-save you just to make sure. And, of course, they could though then and count it through the year and all the people they had reached, all the salvations that occurred from people who were already saved. And early in my ministry, I just had just a complete revulsion of that. So I never want to do that to you, but it's important that you take an always an honest look and understand your faith and what it's about. And uh, we're going to begin that today with the man Judas. Uh, that's kind of where we're beginning. He, he is complex. We don't have much information about him, but we probably have more information about him than over half of the disciples, the apostles. We know that he was Judas, son of Simon, uh, Iscariot. Uh, the word Iscariot most likely refers to where he was born, Kerioth, or where he was from. Uh, some people think it refers to a political affiliation, but it's highly, highly doubtful. He was Judas from the area of Kerioth. That was an area of southern Judea, close to Jerusalem. As such, he was the only one of the 12 guys who was not from the area of Galilee. He didn't come from where Jesus was from. He was different. Because of that, he would have had a close approximation in his life to Jerusalem and the temple and probably went there far more than any of the other apostles. And he probably had a far greater understanding, especially as he grew up, of the inner workings of the city of Jerusalem and of the temple. And he would have, like most of the people at that time, realized that the Sadducees, who were the chief priests, the guys who were from the priesthood, who were in charge of the temple, they were the elite, they were the wealthy, they were those guys, had basically compromised themselves and their integrity by joining an alliance with the Romans. And uh, they did that to stay and keep in power. And Judas would have despised him for that. Judas would have grown up seeing the cruelty of the Romans. He would have seen people, Jewish people, on a regular basis hanging on crosses. Because on a regular basis, Jewish people revolted against the Romans, and that's how they dealt with them. Like the other apostles, he would have had a very close connection and probably a a, a sort of relationship with Pharisees. And despite all the problems with the Pharisees, they were the ones of the people. And they were the ones who were the guardians of the law. So he would have grown up learning about the law from scribes, from rabbis, from Pharisees. And he would have grown up, just like the other apostles, with an expectation that there was the coming of the Messiah. They longed for the Messiah. And I've shared that with you already before a couple of times in this series. They looked for the Messiah to come, arrive in Jerusalem, stand up on the steps of the temple, declare himself as such, raise up an army, defeat the Romans, and forever establish Israel as a kingdom, as God's people. They longed for that. 
Growing up as he did in the area of Judea, he would have become, as a young man, familiar with a guy named Pontius Pilate, who was, for all our purposes, the governor of that area, starting in about 26 AD. Pilate, we know from, a little bit from the Bible, we know from Josephus and a few other historians, basically was a cruel man. Uh, right upon his arrival as governor, he took into the city of Jerusalem and had the Roman you know, soldiers bring standards. Standards were poles with flags on them that you would carry. Uh, it was symbolizing Rome's power and their gods. Caused a violent reaction from the people. In fact, it, what he did was so egregious that even the Caesar, Tiberius, the Romans, uh, rejected what he did and told him to not, basically knock it off. We know from Josephus later on that he would raid the temple uh, treasury, and that the Sadducees were in charge of it, so some relationship with them. He took money from the Holy Temple, which was supposed to be for the cause of God, and used that to build Roman infrastructure works. Because of that, the people of Judea and Jerusalem revolted against uh, Pilate, and to put that down was a bloody, bloody mess. He, he had men, women, and children just slaughtered as an example of his power. We know from Luke 13 that he had some Galileans killed at a time of sacrifice, probably at Passover. And their blood was mixed with the blood of the sacrifices. This was the man. And Judas would have despised him and despised Rome and longed for a Messiah. And people came claiming to be Messiah, but none of them obviously were. And then Jesus comes along and everything changes. We don't know how Judas came in contact with Jesus, but he began to follow him. And then he began to follow him closely. And then he became one of the 12. In the Gospels, when they give a list of the 12 apostles, he's always listed. Even though it's last, he's listed. In Acts chapter 1, Peter says that Judas was one of the 12, and he shared in their ministry. He was a part of the ministry. He saw all the miracles. He heard the teachings. When Jesus sent the guys out to do work, he went. He preached in the name of Jesus. He didn't mind any deeds in the name of Jesus. When he came back and Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning, that was what part of what uh, Judas had done was a part of that. He was there when Jesus fed the 5,000. He picked up one of the 12 basketfuls of food left over. He participated in all of that. And here's the important thing, and you must understand this, or you will never fully get Judas. And this is oftentimes overlooked. At some point, Judas believed that Jesus was the Messiah. You got that? All of his guys believed he was the Messiah. At some point, Judas believed that. Did he fully grasp it? Probably not. Did he commit his life to Jesus? No. But he believed he was the Messiah. And then at some point, Judas became disillusioned. We don't know why. We know in John 6, by then, maybe as early as a year out from the crucifixion, that Judas, Jesus was already aware and said, someone's going to betray me. There was already something going on maybe within Judas. We don't know what happened for sure. We don't know what brought him to this point. But we know that by the time of the events of John 13, he had already gone to the Jewish leaders, Matthew tells us. And in going to the Jewish leaders, he sought them out. They didn't seek him out. He went to them. He had connections to them. And he said, I'll betray Jesus. I'll give him over to you. And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. When the time came for him to actually betray Jesus, the synoptics said he all greeted him with a kiss in the garden. Jesus at the time even looked at him and called him my friend. He still considered Judas his close friend. And Judas gave Jesus over. After Jesus had been tried and condemned, Matthew tells us that at that moment he realized that he had made a mistake, that Jesus was actually going to be put to death. The implication may be that he didn't realize they were going to actually crucify Jesus. They thought something else was going to happen. Came back to the Roman guard. I came back to the Jewish leaders, and he, and he said, I have erred. 
He said, he, it says he had remorse. He gave him the money back and said, I've sinned. I mean, notice what Judas did. He, he recognized that he was wrong. He had great remorse for it. He, he basically did penance. He gave them back what he had, and he admitted to sin. One of the things we talk about in repentance is repentance is a change of direction. It's coming to a place where you recognize your sin, you admit your sin, and you turn and you go the other way. G- Judas came right up to the point of repentance, but he never turned and went back towards Christ. Instead, Judas hung himself. We don't know his motives for all this. Maybe Judas was discouraged because Jesus wasn't going to Messiah, be the Messiah he thought he was going to be. But we know that all these guys, even here at John 13, that at the time of the Passover, was expecting Jesus to declare himself the Messiah because they were arguing, Luke tells us, who's going to be the greatest. But evidently Judas picked up and he wasn't going to do that. And so maybe he was disillusioned and thought, hey, if I force Jesus' hand, if, if I turn him over to the Jews, maybe he'll have to declare himself the Messiah as an act of self-preservation. Or maybe he was just disgruntled and realizing that Jesus wasn't going to pan out the way he thought it was. So that I'd sell him over, get some money, and they'll take him away. It'll be quiet. It'll be over with. Or maybe he thought that somehow he was going to avert a riot, that if Jesus declared himself in any capacity, or if the people did, the Romans would come. He'd seen what the Romans would do. The people would be slaughtered. Jesus wasn't going to be the Messiah anyway. So Maybe he thought this was the best way to keep peace and the Jews would just take him away. But evidently, he didn't understand what they were going to do. And Judas went and took his life. What I want you to know about Judas is that he still had one last chance. And that's what we see today in this passage. Jesus, we're told, was disturbed in his spirit or soul. And he said, truly, one of you is going to betray me. The word disturbed or troubled means to be agitated. It's, it's like if you were to go out to a lake that's calm and, and throw a rock in it and it disturbs it. Or a river that's flowing and you put some rocks or debris and you make them stationary. The water hits it. It disturbs it in rapid form. It's the idea. And then his soul or his spirit of who he was, one, one commentator said, the hardness of Judas' heart disturb the very soul of Jesus. It's an apt description. So in the Greek, it says, amen, amen, or truly, truly, verily, verily, NIV says very truly. You see this several times in John 13. Jesus making these emphatic statements. Guys, listen up. One of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to give me over. And John says they begin to look around at a loss, not understanding this. The idea about a loss means they were confused. What's he talking about? In the synoptic gospels, they began to ask, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? They were wondering, not not because they were afraid that they were going to intentionally do something, but they were thinking, am I unintentionally going to do something? Am I accidentally going to betray Jesus? Because they didn't want to do that. In fact, the only one who probably knew what was going on was Judas. Even he said, Lord, is it I, for whatever reason. I mean, they're just concerned. And now they're, they're, they're reclining at the Passover meal, and depending on what pictures and, you know, works of art you've seen. You may not get it right, but evidently, the, from what we know historically at that time, when they seated, they would have these tables. The tables would be shaped like a U, so there'd be one here, one here, and one there. And they were about, you know, 12 to 18 inches off the ground, enough to seat 13 of them. Wherever Jesus sat was the place of the host, and on either side of him was the place of honor. Now, some will tell you that John sat on one side and Peter the other because they assumed they were the two highest-ranking apostles, but that's not the picture that's there. 
the way Jesus was laying, and they would lay on pillows, you know, kind of down, throw a pillow down and eat with the table, and with, they'd lean with their left shoulder and their head that way and their legs pointed outward. And so they would, you know, take things with their right hand because most of them would have been right-handed. If you were left-handed, just you're out of luck, man. I don't know what to tell you. It's like everything else. The world's not designed for left-handed people. I was actually born left-handed. My mom made me be right-handed. And that's why my handwriting is so confusing. But I said, Mom, if you let me be left-handed, I could have been a Major League Baseball pitcher quite possibly. There's not enough left-handed pictures in the world. He just deprived me of that. Anyways, so they're laying, and, and so Peter is actually opposite them. John is on one side of Jesus on his right. Judas on the other. The picture has to be that way. Peter opposite. And, and so Peter just kind of to talks to John. He's called the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's not mentioned as John. John wrote the gospel, doesn't use his own name. Most everyone understands the disciple whom Jesus loved is John. And so he said, ask him who it is. And so John said, Lord, who's, who is it going to do this? And, and Jesus said, whoever, I take this piece of bread and, and I clean up the juice and give it to them or clean up the, the gravy. And some words you sop. And so he was going to take some bread and just clean up the rest was in the plate and give it. Now, I, I, I am from South Texas, and my mama's mom was an unbelievable country cook, and she was phenomenal. She'd cook anything. Fried just about everything. Everything was fried. And uh, my grandmother, you know, I've said this before, people say, what's the secret to good cooking? A lot of people think it was love. My grandmother said it's lard. That's always the secret is lard, lard, lard. So when she made bacon, my grandmother would cook bacon. She began by putting bacon grease in a pan to cook the bacon. made no sense until my grandmother said, it makes the bacon cook even. So all you young girls out there who can't get your bacon cooked even, you got to start off with bacon grease to get it done. My, my grandmother was that way. So she would fry chicken fried steak, fried chicken fried pork chops, and there would always be stuff left at the bottom of the pan that you make the gravies, the drippings, that was the best part. And so you take a plate, you cover everything in the plate with gravy. When it was over, there was gravy left, so you take the homemade biscuit, bring it in half, and you would sop up the gravy. That was the absolute best part of the meal after you were already stuffed. My mama on Sundays when she would make roast beef after church, we'd come home and all the trippings were left in the pan. She'd make the gravy. And then when I was through eating everything and one of, you know, I was, <laughs> my mom, understand there was me and then my two half-sisters, my mom, my stepfather, and I ate more than everybody, you know, all, everybody combined basically. And uh, so when the roast was over, there was no food and I wanted the rest of the gravy, I'd take a piece of white bread, take the gravy, pour it over the bread to eat the last of the gravy. That was the best part. You get the picture. That's the best part of anything. I never in my life offered the biscuit or the bread to anybody else. There was nobody I loved or cared about that much. <laughs> Jesus took the best. And he gave it to Judas. Judas, this is your last chance. Your last chance as a sign of friendship, of grace, Judas. That was the moment Judas had to make a decision. Whatever happened before happened. Nothing, I, mean, look, I know he had sold Jesus, Jesus out. Jesus was going to the cross no matter what. He was concerned about Judas. Judas, this is your chance to trust me. This is your chance to give your life to me. This was the moment where we had one last chance. And John says, Satan entered into him. In other words, Judas chose to reject Jesus and go towards the enemy. Now, this doesn't mean he had no choice. It doesn't mean he was possessed by the devil. You know, John 13, 2 says the devil came into him. It doesn't mean that. And I told you back when I preached from John 13, 2, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3 in the garden, 
The serpent tempted Eve, you'll be like God. But Eve sinned, then Adam sinned, and when God came, he came to Adam, and he held him accountable. Adam tried to blame Eve. Adam tried to blame the snake. God said, no, you're accountable for what you do. Judas had the opportunity. He had the choice, and he chose to reject Jesus. And Jesus said, what you're going to do, then just go do it quickly. It was done. It was over. And he left. The guys didn't fully understand why, because he was the treasurer, which means he had a place of prominence in the group. They trusted him. They thought he was going to buy some more food for the rest of the feast, or maybe he was going to go get some money to the poor. John says it was night, and some of the old commentators make a big deal it was night. really doesn't matter. He left, and he was gone. Understand these two things, though, about Judas. Judas had every opportunity to have faith in Christ, every opportunity. He saw everything the other guys saw. He experienced everything they experienced. He had every opportunity to give his life and trust Christ completely. He did not trust in himself. Second thing to understand is this. Betrayal and rejection still is a process. One of the things I like to remind people is coming to Christ is a process. There is the moment when we cross from being lost to saved. There is that second, that millisecond we cross over. But there was a process that leads up to that and a process that extends from it. And if you reject Jesus, it is usually a process. You've had opportunity. You've had chances. You've heard sermons. You've seen Christ's work. And you get to that point and you reject him. And Judas rejected him. One last time. Which brings us then to the significance of all of this. What does this really mean to us? And keep in mind that it's never my intention, as I said, to ever place any doubt. But truth is still has to be out there. So here's the thing. I'm going to share three things with you that we should get out of it. The first is this. Appearances can be deceiving, but faith is always evident. Appearances can be deceiving, but faith is always evident. Until this moment in his life, Judas gave every appearance of being committed to Christ until he didn't. Now think about Judas and Peter. Peter was a leader. Judas, obviously, because he kept the money, had some position. They all heard the same thing. They saw the same thing. But they both in some way betrayed Jesus. Judas betrayed him to the Jews. Peter denied knowing Jesus to the point of cursing Jesus. Both of them were broken about it. Judas realized he had sinned. He was remorseful. Peter wept bitterly. Judas hung himself, but Peter kept on, and he kept on, and he served Jesus, and he gave his life completely to Christ. See, if you look at Peter's life, despite this incident, it's evident he followed Christ with all the apostles. It's evident. They all messed up. I mean, you read the Gospels, these guys rarely come across very well. They lack faith. They're not very bright. They just say stupid things. They can't do things. It's like Jesus picked the 12 worst guys possible. In fact, the guy who looked the most promising was the one who betrayed him. And you come to the book of Acts, and these guys change the world. You know, life, I say this, is sometimes best captured as a movie, not as a snapshot or a picture. Sometimes we just take pictures of our life. Ugh. If you took a few snapshots of my life, you may not think I'm a father of Jesus. I mean, last night, I was shooting fireworks around my neighborhood, and, you know, and they're loud, and my dogs are going nuts, and, you know, and I'm out there. And if you could take a picture of my thoughts, 
you would say, that, that guy can't preach tomorrow. That guy can't be a Christian. Sometimes if you took snapshots of me driving or other things. But if you took the whole movie, now the movie would have some rough parts in it. There'd have to be a warning, and sometimes, you know, this, this part is, is TV, you know, is, mature audiences only, and you've got to watch this part for language and this part for violence. But if you saw the movie, you'd say, yeah, he's a follower of Jesus. It's the process. It's the evidence of life. Judas is a warning to all who rely on beliefs and facts and works instead of faith and commitment. That's the second thing. Judas is a warning. That if you rely on believing in facts or your works instead of faith and commitment. There's advantages, you know, and disadvantages to growing up in the church. I've shared before with you, this with you, I shared it last week actually. Somewhere, depending on the survey or the year, about 80% of all people who are followers of Christ came to be a follower of Christ before the age of 18. Most of them between the ages of 19, 11, and 12. People after the 18, after you're 18, who become a follower of Jesus, most of them have sort of some sort of Christian background, education connection. Very few people never know or never hear of Jesus or have no connection to Jesus ever come to Christ. Some do, but not many. Which is why we focus so much on children and youth. You know, our youth, after the 11 o'clock service, our youth are going off to camp. Camp got shrunk down, down to three days, two nights. But we're taking them because it's important that they hear and learn about Jesus every chance we can. We opened up Wamba Land and Upstreet. You know, we're doing it. A lot of churches probably aren't. We w- took our time, waited, and said, we got to do it. we got to get our kids back to teaching them. We're having vacation Bible school next week. Oh, pray, pray, pray. We can pull that off. And there are so many obstacles, not on our end, but on other ends, you might guess, that might make that difficult. Pray that we have wisdom. Pray that we don't take snapshots of the pastor that don't look good in that process. But why are we doing that? Because we can't let opportunities pass us by. We don't have many. But there is a danger that if you grow up in the church, you might just think because you believe the right things, and you do. You believe God created everything. You believe the Bible's the word of God. You believe Christmas and Easter, and you do the right things. You go to church and give and teach. That you believe and do the right things that you think that is what saves me. And not faith in Christ. See, a subsidiary or kind of a correlate of what I just said is this. Belief and obedience are evidence of faith. They cannot be a substitute for it. Too many people will substitute what they believe and how they act and say, that saves me. No. It is the evidence of your salvation. It's how you know you're saved. See, if you think that saves you, then you're trusting you're trusting what you believe and you're trusting what you dig. Now, this, never, this is never brought about or said to think that somehow you're not saved or that somehow people can lose their salvation. Some folks teach that you can lose your salvation. You never, never can. Once you're saved, you're saved. But here's the thing. You cannot lose what you do not have. And too many people do not have a faith in Christ. They have a life of doing things and believing things, but they don't have a life of faith. Faith is evidenced by what you do. What you do is not faith. And we need to understand that. So here's the thing about being a follower of Jesus. Follower of Jesus. Live like Jesus. They love like Jesus. And they serve like Jesus. That's what John 13 is about. A follower of Jesus lives like Jesus. 
loves like Jesus loves, serves like Jesus serves. What is it? One of the things I tell people when they're struggling, what is it that Jesus values? He valued God and worshiping God. Do you? He valued people who were in rebellion against God and lost so that he gave his life for them. He valued lost people. Do you value lost people? He valued those who were hurting and suffering and he cared for them. Do you value those who suffer? Do you value the same things that Jesus values? Because here's the, here's the issue. Followers live like he lives. Love like he loved. Serve like he serves. That's what it looks like. Judas gave the appearance of those things. But it was never real. Because he wasn't truly committed to Christ. And so when the moment came that it really mattered most, he betrayed Jesus. Not because he didn't believe the right things or do the right things. It's because he didn't trust the right person. He trusted himself, not Christ. I began by saying that some people live, act, and talk like followers of Jesus, but they are not. That was Judas to a T. Judas never trusted Christ. He simply trusted himself. And so he didn't live, love, and serve like Jesus. He betrayed him, and he hung himself. The thing I want to ask you today is do you really trust Jesus? Or do you trust yourself? Because if you trust yourself, you're not living, loving, and serving like Jesus. And if you trust yourself, there's going to come a time when you will betray the Lord. Because you're not really one of his own. Some of you today need to give your life to Christ. You never have. You've never trusted him to be your savior. You need to do that. If you're watching online, and when we have our invitation in just a moment, the, on the screen or wherever, it'll say respond and a number to text to, and you can do that, and someone will talk to you. But if you're here, we're going to be standing here, and if you need to give your life to Christ, come give your life to Christ. Trust him to be your savior. And if you've already trusted Jesus, let me ask you this. Do you live like it? Do you love like it? Or do you serve like it? If not, you need to say, Lord, help me to live, love, and serve like Christ. <laughs> Let me live that way. Maybe we'll pray with you or whatever you need to do. We'll, we'll help you through that process. If you want to join our church, we'd love to have you join. Someone joined in the earlier services. And I don't, I don't know what it is you need to do. But just be sure when you walk out today, you walk out living, loving, serving like Christ. So, Father, we come before you, we praise you, we honor you, we glorify you. You are the God of all gods. You sent Christ into this world to give us salvation. And we praise Jesus for who he is. And we honor Jesus for who he is. But also we praise him and honor him for what he has done. He has given his life for us. So now let us give our life to him. That we may live, love, and serve just like Jesus. And follow him in faith. In Christ's name, Father, we pray. And we give you glory. Amen. Would you stand? We'll be here at the front to greet you.